turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews is towards the back of the New Testament. Book of Hebrews. As you turn there, you know, a, a critical moment in history is found when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Joseph is taken to Egypt where he, according to and by the Lord's grace and blessing, rises to a position of great authority and second command in all of Egypt. He delivers his family from famine as God's providence works its way out and God graciously works through Joseph. Well, as time passes, the Egyptians forget who Joseph was. And years later, God's people who had traveled there under Joseph's care to be saved from famine find themselves in a position of slavery. The Israelites are enslaved to the Egyptians for approximately 400 years. And I would say that in that time, I, I would just have to imagine that joy was difficult. Hope was difficult. Joy probably was a foreign word to many as they cried out to the Lord, but as as Matt reminded us, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of trying circumstances, we have joy in the Lord. But the people cried out to God, and, and we read in Scripture in Exodus 3, verse 7 to 10, that God heard their cry, and he sends Moses to deliver them. Now, in that moment, it's certainly a, a long passage, a, a long account of what happens and in those days and, and what they go through. But ultimately, can you imagine the joy that begins to fill the people's heart when they realize and they understand that God has indeed heard their cry and God has sent one to deliver them. He has sent one to free them. Ultimately, when they are free, when they are delivered through many trials, many tribulations, they cross the Red Sea, they get across, they are delivered from the Egyptians it prompts the song of Moses that you can look at later in Exodus 15, the song of great rejoicing in the deliverance of the Lord. What we need to see and we need to understand is that there is great joy in the deliverance of the Lord. There's great joy in the deliverance of the Lord. Let's read this morning Hebrews chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, when we start right there in verse 1, we read the first 
word there, therefore, right? And we know, you know, you should know. If you don't know, you're about to know that when you read therefore, you want to know what it is therefore, right? It points to something that is preceded. It ties itself to the previous text. And so here in chapter 3, verse 1, we understand that the the writer is referencing chapter 2, verses 14 down to verse 18, if you, if you just skim this passage and look at that previous paragraph, we see that he's talking about who we are as redeemed, that, that Christ came unto us, that he himself, in verse 14, talking about Christ, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He goes on to talk about it wasn't the angels that he helps, but it was the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, why? Why did he have to be made like us? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so now the writer says, therefore, in light of those truths, in light of the fact that that Christ came to deliver those who through fear of death were held and subject to lifelong slavery. Because what it says in verse 17, that he is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In view of that, therefore, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think upon him, he says there in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, believers, those who are the family of God, he says, those who share in a heavenly calling, those who have a a state claim in the city of God, in, in heaven, consider Jesus. Meditate upon Jesus. Chew on Jesus. Think deeply upon him, who he is, what he has done. Now, why? Why? Because he says, look look there in in verse 1, he says, consider Jesus, and it is tied to verse 3. Why? For, we're to consider him for why? Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. More glory than Moses. Why? Well, it's because of what he's described in verses 14 to 18 of chapter 2. Because Jesus is our great high priest, And so we gather this moment, this Christmas season, this Advent season, we gather to consider Jesus, to think upon our Savior, to think upon our Christ who is deserving of more glory. He's worthy of more glory than Moses, which, as we'll think about in a moment, is a significant statement. So we gather here to consider him. Now, a couple weeks ago, and we started this series and we looked at Christ the true and better Adam, I ended that message asking a question. The question was, why does it matter? Why does it matter for us to think about why Christ is a true and better Adam? Well, this morning, we're going to begin there. We're going to begin asking, why does it matter that Christ is a true and better Moses? Why is that important this Advent season for us to come and us to think about and consider Jesus and how he is a true and better Moses? What does that have to do with you and with me? You see, that question, why does it matter, is a question that I would say most of us ask, if not all of us ask. If we don't, we should, 
right? We want to know what does it matter to me? Where does it hit my life? Where does it intersect my life? And the bottom line is if it doesn't matter, then we all just go home, right? We're kind of wasting our time, but the truth is it does matter. And the reason it matters, the answer to that question, why does it matter that Christ is a true and better Moses? The answer is it matters because outside of Christ, we are all in bondage to sin. We're all in bondage to sin. Did you catch that in Hebrews 2.15? What did Jesus come for? He says he came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to what? Lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery. You see, thinking about Jesus as the true and better Moses matters because we are those subject to lifelong slavery. Now, I would imagine that there are some of you, if not a lot of you in here, that would sit back and go, no, I'm not. I'm an American. I'm free. I have constitutional freedoms. I live in a free nation. I haven't been in slavery, and I don't plan on being enslaved, and I'm not enslaved right now. So this is not me. It's the same, interestingly enough, it's the same exact response, if that's you, if you're thinking that, it's the same exact response to the Jews in John 8. If, if you want to flip over to John 8 for a moment, you can, or you can just listen. But in John 8, Jesus is talking to the Jews, and they have that same exact thought of, I'm not enslaved. I'm not a, I'm not a slave to anyone. I've never been a slave. And so Jesus in John 8, beginning in verse 31, he's speaking to the Jews, and this is what we, what we read. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, now the people at that point, they say, wait a minute, set us free, set us, set us free from What? right? They understand that, that if you're going to come before them and say, hey, you've been set free, there has to be something to be set free from, right? So in order, when we have the same, we should have a similar thought that when we read something like Hebrews 2.15, and we read that it says that those are subjected to lifelong slavery, there has to be something we're enslaved to, right? And so they hear that and go, what? Verse 33, it says, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They, they essentially say the same thing. We're Americans. We're not enslaved to anyone. How is it that you would stand here at Grace Baptist Church this morning and tell me that I'm enslaved to something, right? Listen to what Jesus tells the Jews. He would say the same thing to us this morning by his word. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So he says, listen, you need to know that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who continues to walk in sin is enslaved to it. It's an important truth that we have to take this morning. That outside of Christ, we are in bondage to sin. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. If that's you this morning, then Scripture explains clearly 
and your life would testify to the reality that you are in bondage to sin. Just like I was and everyone else in here was who's a Christian prior to Christ's redeeming, freeing work in our lives. You're in bondage to sin. Now, our culture is doing an interesting thing right now over the last few years, and it's really kind of boiling to the top. What it is is, is they're separating body and soul, separating the idea that you truly and really have a soul, right? And instead, they're, they're separating the two. So the philosophy of our day would separate the two, disregarding the importance of the soul and then ultimately devaluing the body. And we, we see that all over. It's worked out. We don't have time to dig into this this morning, but we see it everywhere we turn, the devaluing, the degrading of the body. But in the midst of that, the soul is marginalized, is disregarded. It's not important. It's of no use to where people in our day would perhaps even question, do we have a soul? We do have a soul. God created us body, soul, unified as one. You cannot separate the two. The two are inseparable. And your soul is enslaved to sin outside of Christ. It is enslaved to sin. Unbeliever, you have to admit this morning that you daily just act according to your own pleasures, your own pride, your own desires. The, the things that are contrary to God's will, you just, that's where you live. You just actively live in that. And it's what you do because it's what you know to do. It's who you are as a slave to sin. That, that doesn't mean that you're as awful as you possibly could be. Praise the Lord for his common grace that withholds some, some, your, the depth of your sin that might allow you to be as terrible and as awful as you might be. But it does mean that you operate according to your master, sin. Now, the bad news of that is that the result of sin is death, eternal death and damnation. The result of that sin is being punished by the wrath of God because as sinners outside of Christ, we stand guilty before a holy judge. But the good news is that Christ came to set the captives free. Some of you may remember Jesus is, is there and he's, he's in the temple. And he's teaching. They hand him a scroll and he opens the scroll by God's providence to, to Isaiah. And he reads, he stands and he reads. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me. Why? Do you remember? He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Who is that? It's us. It's us who are in bondage to sin, who are oppressed by sin, who are enslaved to sin. Christ comes to set us free. So why does it matter that Jesus Christ is the true and better Moses for us today? It matters because outside of Christ, we are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to sin. We're without hope. We're without joy. But Christ comes to set the captives free. He comes to deliver us from bondage. It mattered greatly to the Israelites in bondage to Egypt. 
when Moses comes and says, God has sent me to deliver you. It mattered greatly in that moment. And it matters even more greatly that God has sent forth his son to all mankind to free us from the bondage of sin. It matters that Jesus Christ is the true and better Moses. So let's look at what Hebrews 3 says about Christ being the true and better Moses. Hebrews 3, 1 to 6 describes Moses as a, a type for Jesus. Right? He's, a, he's a type for Jesus. Moses is exemplary, but Christ is better. Remember, we talked about that two weeks ago. We explained how a type is a, a person or a thing that, that patterns or images or foreshadows a later thing in two ways. It, it corresponds, there's significance, uh, significant correspondence between the two, and then also that it excels upon, it accelerates, it improves upon the, the latter improves upon the former, right? So the type is improved by the, what follows, the anti-type. And so Christ, as better, he corresponds with Moses in some ways, but he excels what Moses did. He improves what Moses did. Matt Papa and Matt Boswell note that and understand that. That's why in their song, Christ the True and Better, they wrote this about Moses. They wrote, Christ the True and Better Moses, called to lead a people home. Standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two. See the veil is torn forever, cleansed with blood. We pass now through. Isn't that a beautiful, poetic description of Christ as the true and better Moses? That we would understand that what Moses did foreshadowed, it imaged, it, showed, it, it served as a pattern for what Christ would do. That we might better understand what Christ did. Now, for the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 to say that, that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. This is a significant statement, right? I mean, just think back about what you know about Moses. I would say even if you're here, you're an unbeliever, you probably know and have a... a, a a working knowledge of who Moses is, right? You at least know that, that Moses is the one who God delivered the Ten Commandments to. But let's think back about Moses for a moment. Moses, you, you'll remember, was, was born in a time in which, in which the babies all around were, were to be killed. And so when he's born, his mother puts him in a basket and floats him down the river to deliver him, to keep him safe. Exodus 2.1 tells us that, that Moses was of the tribe of Levi. Now, this is important, especially when we think about Hebrews 3, because the tribe of Levi is the tribe from which the priests would come. They're the tribe from which those would come who would intercede on the people's behalf. They're the ones that, that came and they offered sacrifices. Now, this wasn't happening yet, right? This is something that God would do through Moses to establish, but he was of the tribe of Levi, so he grows up in Egypt, right? He grows up in Egypt. He rejects royalty. In Hebrews 11, it, it tells us that he rejects the, the pleasures of Egypt, right? The fleeting pleasures of sin for the sake of suffering with his people. So Moses flees from Egypt and he, he goes and, and when he flees from Egypt, he's, he's, he becomes a shepherd. He's there in Midian and God sends Moses. God comes and we have the event of the burning bush, 
right? You remember the burning bush? God speaks to Moses. He says, this is holy ground that you stand upon. Now I, the Lord, your God, the, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have heard the cries of my people and I am sending you to deliver them. I'm sending you back from where you fled from to deliver my people. You will bring freedom to them. Moses goes and as he goes, he, 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 he performs great signs and wonders, the plagues. He does this for all of the, the people to see. He then leads the people out, parting the Red Sea, that, that image that Boswell and Papa gave us in their song, that he stands with arms outstretched and the seas part. He leads the people. He faithfully leads the people. That's one of the great things that we see in Moses. We'll hear from Hebrews 3 is that he was faithful in leading God's people, interceding for them before the Lord. Even in the midst of their grumbling, grumbling and disobedience, Moses interceded for the people. You may even remember the moment where there was snakes and the people were snake bitten and, and Moses has a bronze serpent on a pole that he lifts up and the Lord tells him that anyone who looks uh, to the pole, looks to the serpent, that he will be delivered and saved. God gave the law, the old covenant, to Moses, to the people. A significant moment, which Scott already referenced, that through Moses, God brought the law. Moses was a respected, venerated man of old. Hebrews 11, listen to how Hebrews 11 describes Moses as exemplary, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he has grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward." By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer, the firstborn, might not touch them. Moses is seen as an exemplary saint of old. He is a commended leader. He is a respected leader. He's revered by the people, but Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is a true and better Moses. Think about a few things with me. Moses was a child that was saved from the king's death edict. Do you remember in Matthew 2, 13, 18? Jesus, as a child, is taken to Egypt to be saved from a very similar death edict of the king. Moses was sent to deliver the people of God from Egypt. Jesus was sent to deliver the people of God from sin and death. Moses was rejected and opposed by his own countrymen when he went to deliver them. Jesus, we read in Isaiah 53, 3 and John 1, 9 to 11, was despised and rejected by the very men that he made in his image and whom he chose for his own. Moses performed signs and wonders by the power of God. Jesus performs signs and wonders by his own power. We have that testimony in John 2 through 11. Moses, we read of as being faithful in God's house, as part of God's house, but Jesus was faithful over God's house. Through Moses came the law. Through Jesus came grace and truth. Moses was the one by whom God established the old covenant of works. And Jesus 
established the new covenant of grace through His shed blood on the cross. Jesus is the true and better Moses. We consider Him today. So in Hebrews 3, 1-6, we read there that Jesus as the greater Moses is described as the, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. The apostle and the high priest of our confession. See, Moses and various other saints of old were, were messengers. They were apostles, so to speak. They were sent of God. There were various high priests, but Jesus is the apostle and the high priest we read here. He is the true messenger of the Lord. He is the true and better high priest. Let's think about those two things just for a moment. So when he says Jesus as the apostle, we think back about Moses and we understand that Moses is a messenger from God. An apostle is one who is sent to represent, one who is a messenger of the Lord. God had sent Moses. God sent him to free his people. He sent him to give the law, to bring about the old covenant. But we read here, Jesus is the apostle. He is the one. This is the only time that Jesus is described or called an apostle. It's the only time you find it in Scripture. Here he says Jesus is the apostle. He was the messenger sent from God proclaiming what? That the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said it is here. It is time. Repent and believe. He was sent. We read already in Luke 4.18, he was sent what? To proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. In John 3, 17, we read that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, we read also there that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. He sent his son. He sent him forth to bring salvation. So the message that Jesus brought was one of salvation. It was one of hope. It was one of peace. It was one of joy to the world. So we celebrate, we gather every year at this time. Why? Because we rejoice in the fact that God sent his son. God sent his son and it is a cause for great rejoicing. He sent him to free us from sin. But not only is he described here as the apostle, he's described here as the high priest. The high priest. I noted earlier that Moses was of the tribe of Levi, the tribe in which uh, the priest would come. It was through Moses, you'll remember, that God established the priesthood, that he gave the instructions. He established the sacrificial system to atone for the people's sins. But Jesus the great high priest comes into this system and he, Hebrews 2.17 said, made propitiation for the sins of the people. So the sacrificial system that was established in Moses, Jesus comes as the high priest who ends the need for sacrifices. He is the final sacrifice. He is the great high priest. So we see in Exodus 24, 7 to 8, or 3 through 8, I'm sorry, that Moses comes and he offers sacrifices for the covenant. He offers, offers sacrifices. He sprinkles blood on the new covenant with God. Jesus comes and he offers his very own blood. He doesn't offer the blood of a sheep or a goat, a lamb. He offers his very own 
blood, for he is the Lamb of God. As John said when he saw him in John 1, 29, he looks and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus offers his own blood. He is the great high priest. The one who Hebrews 7, 23 to 25 tells us holds his priesthood forever. It says he is able to save to the uttermost and he lives to make intercession for his people. The work he still does. You see, the work that Christ did brought salvation. The work that he still does is interceding for his people. He's the high priest who in Hebrews 8, 1, is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. In Hebrews 9, 12, he's the high priest who entered the holy place by his own blood to secure an eternal redemption for all who trust in him. For all who trust in him. In Hebrews 9, verse 23 to 25, he is the great high priest who offers a better sacrifice. I want you just to hear this. Just hear Hebrews 9, 23. He says, It was necessary for copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, some of the sacrificial rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ being offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, Christ offers a better sacrifice because the sacrifice he offers is his own blood. He lays down his life for the sheep. He is the apostle. He is the high priest. He is the true and better Moses. In Hebrews 3, 2, we see how Jesus is compared to Moses. He's compared in what way? Both of them are what? They're faithful. Both of them are faithful. In verse 2, it says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So the writer knows how venerated Moses was. He says, listen, Moses was faithful to do what God called him to do. And Jesus, even more so. This, this idea of faithfulness continues throughout Hebrews 3. At the end of our passage today, in verse 6, it says that we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. It's a, it's a reminder, it's a warning, it's a call to be faithful, to remain faithful and to persevere in Christ. The remainder of the chapter, verses 7 all the way through the end down to verse 19, is a warning, is a call to remain faithful, to cling unto God, to keep your heart set upon the Lord, not to turn aside from the Lord, but to remain faithful to him. We look to Christ because he was faithful to come as the promised Messiah. He was faithful to live as God called him to live. He was faithful to die as they had planned from all eternity. He's faithful to keep his word. He's faithful to carry out the work for which he came. And he's faithful to save 
all who trust in him, Scripture says. He is faithful, and so we look to him because of that. And then we hear an appeal coming out of that right there in verse 7 all the way to the end of the chapter. We don't have time to get in this today, but we hear this appeal. You likewise be faithful unto the Lord, cling unto the Lord. Are you walking in faithfulness to the Lord as a side note today? Are you walking with the Lord? As we stand at the end of a year, do you look back and, and see a year that you've walked in faithfulness through the ups and downs? We've all had moments of failure and moments that, that we would be proud of, moments that we would be ashamed of. But are you walking in faithfulness over the course of the year? Have you resolved, do you resolve this coming year to walk in faithfulness to the Lord? Oh, he's faithful. Let us likewise be faithful. But in verses 3 to 6, we see how Jesus is shown as better than Moses. See, he was compared to Moses in verse 2, right? But here he's better. He excels upon, he excels past Moses. He is greater. He's more magnificent. He's worthy of more glory, and he's better in a very significant way. The, the example that the writer here uses is that he's as much glory, much more glory than Moses as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. Some of you in here may know of the Falling Waters house in Pennsylvania, a house built by an architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, my, my first year of college, I was an architecture major, and we studied Frank Lloyd Wright a lot. He was kind of this tower, this hero of architecture. He still is, and millions of people will go to this house in Pennsylvania to see it. But you know what? People don't walk through the house and go, oh, this magnificent house, and never fail to think about Frank Lloyd Wright. I know there's others in, in here who like architecture, or you studied architecture, and you know exactly who Frank Lloyd Wright is. And you know that that house is a display of his genius, of, his, of how remarkable of an architect he was. That house points to him. We don't give glory to the house. We don't give recognition to the house in that instance. We give recognition to Frank Lloyd Wright for building the house. Moses was a great man. He was a great leader. He was faithful, this faithful servant to God. But to honor Moses as higher than Jesus would be like honoring a house higher than the builder. Jesus is supreme. He's greater than Moses. He is worthy of more glory than Moses. Specifically, there's two ways that we read here in this passage. There's two ways that Jesus is better than Moses. Look at the, look at the text. The first one is it, that he is of a greater position than Moses. He's a greater position than Moses. So we, we read that Moses, in verse 5, Moses was faithful in all of God's house. In verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house. So Moses is faithful in God's house. That, that is a reference to what? It's a reference to what Barry read in our hearing the word earlier in Numbers 12. Remember, they're, they're kind of debating, they're arguing, and, and God brings them before him, right? He brings them before him, and, and he is, is kind of giving special credence to Moses. He, he's given, the, just elevating Moses, saying, Moses is special. Like, I, I come and I speak in visions and dreams to, to prophets, but not Moses. Moses I just speak to him. I just talk to him. Moses is special. Moses is to be venerated. 
Moses is a faithful servant in all of God's house. You're to respect him. Why would you speak a word against Moses, right? He is faithful in all God's house. Well, now here we read in Hebrews 3, 6. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, right? But Christ is faithful over God's house. I mean, it's one thing to be faithful in the house. It's a whole other ballgame to be faithful over it. See, Moses was in the house just as we are. He was part of us. He was a man just like we are. But Christ is over the house as the eternally existent Word of God. He is one of the triune God, one person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, the Word of God who took on flesh to become men, or man that He might dwell upon us, or among us. He is God and He reigns above. So His position is greater and better than Moses. What's the second? Do you see the second distinction here? Look at your text. Look at verse 5 and 6. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that are to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as what? A son, right? So he was greater in position, and secondly, he was greater in identity. Moses was Faithful in God's house as a servant. Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. Now, the the word here for servant, this is not a word that's kind of denigrating Moses or pushing him down and saying he's not important. It's not the word, some of you are familiar with the word doulos in the Greek, the the word that's translated often slave when Paul will say, I'm a slave of Christ. And sometimes in in your scriptures, depending on what translation, it may be translated as a bondservant or a servant of God. That's the word doulos. Here, the word translated is therapon, and it describes a, a servant who has a very noble position that's appointed by the one who is the master of the house. It's actually saying that he is a very important person in the house of God. He is, he is to be respected. He has great recognition, great authority as a servant in the house. Okay, so instead of pushing Moses down and going, ah, Moses isn't that big a deal, he's actually saying Moses is a big deal. Like Moses is a very important servant in the Lord's house. He's been appointed in the house. But Jesus is better for he is no servant. He's the son. He's the son. He is better than Moses. Moses held a high position in God's house. Jesus, as the son of God, holds a higher position over the house. He is the son of God. The son of God who, in the beginning of Hebrews, right, in 1 verse 2 is described as the one through whom God has finally revealed himself. Hebrews begins, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by his prophets, by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is over the house of God as the Son. Now, we read in verse 5 that Moses spoke of what? What was his task? What did he do? He testified to what? What did he testify to in verse 5? The things that were to be spoken later. Now, what might that be? He, he testified to those things that were to be spoken later. That's referencing back 
to Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. In Deuteronomy 18, here's what you read. The Lord, he's speaking to Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Or Sorry, Moses saying this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the people are looking forward to this one who would speak a new and a better word, who would speak, who would come as the prophet. And so you see that referenced in in various places. In Acts 3, 17 to 26, Peter calls the people to repentance in Solomon's portico, and he does so because the prophet Moses foretold of the one that would come, and he was Jesus. He would save us from our wickedness. The one who would come, the prophet who would come. In Acts 7, 35 to 53, that's the passage where Stephen is being stoned to death, or about to be stoned to death. And Stephen gives this beautiful exposition and retelling of the meta-narrative, the account, the story of Scripture, and all that God had done. Well, part of what he includes is that, the, uh, that Jesus is the prophet that Moses spoke of. He's the one. He's the one that speaks a new and a better word, that Moses testified of what would be to come, the message that would be to come, the word that would be to come. See, Moses is highly honored in God's house. And he testified to the things that were to be spoken later. What was that? What was to be spoken later is that the good news that Christ had come and salvation was made available to all who would repent and trust in Christ alone. That there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the gospel, the better word. Listen, this Advent season, this Christmas, we can't miss the beauty and significance of the sending of Christ, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. It's, it's so easy, right? I think you would acknowledge it's so easy to get distracted by just the busyness, the hustle and bustle, just the concerns of life, the, the glittering lights, glimmering lights, I should say. I don't guess lights glitter. Glimmering lights, the exchanging of gifts, shopping, going to this Christmas party and that Christmas party and making sure everything you wear is red and green instead of pink and blue like I have on, right? All these things. And it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to miss the beauty and the truth that God sent forth His Son to redeem us from the bondage of sin, to save us out of sin. May that not be of us. May that not be said of us that that we would go throughout all this season and fail to remember, fail to recognize, fail to think and consider Christ who saved us, Christ who is the true and better Moses. So what does it matter? What does it matter that Christ is the true and better Moses? It matters because God sent Jesus to bring joy to man by freeing us from being enslaved to sin, freeing us from the guilt of sin, freeing us from the penalty of sin. God sent His own Son for us. That is cause for great joy. 
And the, the writer of Hebrews reminded us in, in chapter 9, we read that, I don't know if you caught that at the, the very end, but he said, uh, Christ offered his, himself once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Listen, Advent is not just a call to remember that God sent his son. It's also a call to remember that he is going to return again. He will come again. Do we eagerly await him? He is going to save those who eagerly await him. Are we eagerly awaiting the return of Christ? Are you anticipating the return of Christ? Does Advent remind you of the faithfulness of God in sending Christ the first time and fill you with joy and anticipation that he will send him again? Oh, it should. It should. Listen, you need to know today that outside of Christ, you're enslaved to sin. Your soul is in bondage. You're guilty before God. And you can't separate that from the rest of your life. That is your life. You're guilty before a holy judge. And you need the freedom that is found in Christ. And the only way that that freedom is found in Christ is by repenting, turning from your sins, and trusting Jesus Christ alone as Lord. That is the call of the gospel. That's the good news of the Christmas season. It's why the gospel is a declaration of good news. Because the captives have been set free by Christ, the true and better Moses. So would you do that this Christmas season? Would you turn from your sin and look unto Christ who sets the captives free? Believers, may this be a reminder of the one who is faithful to send the Messiah to redeem us and the one who remains faithful and will send him again. Christ will return. May we eagerly await him. Let's pray.